Blog Talk Radio. The following program is brought to you by Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Hi, my name's John Carousella, and I'm your host for Convergence on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Convergence is to consciousness as gravity is to the material world. In small amounts, gravity is overwhelmed by every other fundamental force of the universe. But gravity has something nothing else has. It's cumulative. The more matter you collect, the more gravity you get, until it becomes the most powerful force of the material world. I think convergence is like that, too. Only in this case, we're working with truth. The more truth we collect, the more convergence we experience. Connections, relationships, resonance of ideas and concepts, science and mysticism. Lately, deep truths just seem to be coming together, even as many of the illusions around us are falling apart. As within, so without. As above, so below. I know I'm feeling it, and I'll bet you are too. For the next 90 minutes, we'll be exploring concepts and topics that in some way or another bring us around to a deeper truth. Join me and my guests for this week's experience of Convergence. Welcome, everyone. This is Convergence, and I'm your host, John Carousella. And with me for today's roundtable are my wonderful, inspiring co-hosts, Mildred Lynn McDonald. Good morning. And Hi C. Lutmers. Hello, hello. And for today's roundtable topic, I would love to explore uh, a, a really simple question that I think is rich and has lots of fun in it. What do you do to stay young? This is the time of year, it's May, the plants are all in full vigor and they're, they're doing their thing. Well, and I turned 54 this year, so I'm not quite as young as the green leaves on the trees. And I'm, I'm interested and curious, uh, soliciting advice on how do you stay young? Anybody? Yeah, I'll jump in there, John, (laughs) with youthful enthusiasm. Okay. (laughs) Um, One thing that I find really helps me is I identify with my spirit and I view my spirit as ageless. So that would be the first little bit of of guidance how I would choose to stay young. How did you get to the place where you were able to view your spirit as ageless? Because I view my spirit outside of space and time and it's eternal. So age is not something that even can be used in the same sentence. And when I clued into that, I really liked that idea. So I thought, well, I'm going to go with that. So, but does your spirit doesn't, I mean, I, when I think of my, I think of my spirit, I mean, I still have the, I guess I'll say the burdens of my experience, you know, the, the heaviness such, such as the, you know, where there is heaviness, I have the, the heaviness of my past experiences that are part of my, part of my spirit's experience. What I, what I stand with my spirit, my spirit has a sense of ageless wonder. Ah. So I look at the world with beginner's eyes, and some may say I'm a very simple person. 
because things delight me. Maybe things that would not normally delight a person of my age, uh, things that would delight a child. But I do sense in my spirit a lightness, a youthfulness, a sense of awe. And that would be the number one thing that I find keeps my outlook, keeps my being youthful. So so what do you do with your with any of the heavy burdens of your experience? I pass them over to someone else. <laughs> <laughs> I I if something is not within the context of joyfulness, then I have an opportunity to find the gift in the experience. And it's not always easy, but there are certain disciplines that I go through and one of them is to meditate in the morning and the evening to help center myself. And I find that a lot of the burdens are perceived burdens. It's simply you're stuck looking at something in a certain way. And when I'm able to expand my perspective for connecting with my spirit, which is ageless and youthful and joyful, I'm usually given the gift of ah, an ah moment. And what that simply is, is a little bit of inspiration on how I can choose to look at things differently. That's where I go. Okay. I see. How about you? Um, Well, the the first thing I would say, kind of following up on what you were just saying is I, I would, I tend to think that those, those heavy experiences, if you will, are related to the human condition of this lifetime. And now I'm going to talk in terms of the idea of reincarnation and stuff, but you know, the I know Mildred is going to laugh, but the ancient Egyptians <laughs> um, envisioned the soul, which here I think the soul is perhaps a, a word similar to what you're saying for spirit, that they envisioned the soul as a bird. And that bird resided kind of caged up, but resided within the human body, within the human self. And then at the time of death is released. So that's why for me, there's a sense that these heavy things that you're talking about, while they may be related to this human experience, they are not carried with the soul because the soul takes flight and is unburdened or is unweighted from them upon death of this particular human lifetime and its experience. So there isn't that heaviness, if you will, in my view. Uh, but, okay, okay, but but we are what uh, we're humans, right? So we're living in this. In the, we are living in this human condition. Well, speak for yourself, but go ahead. <laughs> well, in the sense that, in the, in the <laughs> sense that I happen to have a, a 54 year old body, and, uh, and and I'm I'm curious about how you how you manage. Or, or, or if you, I guess maybe, are you saying that you don't need to rejuvenate because you never age? <laughs> Why, yes. Um, <laughs> I would echo that, yes. <laughs> um, it, no, it's, but uh, like with what Mildred was saying, if we can keep our attention and focus, and if we're feeding the bird of the soul rather than getting focused on the human body aspect then we have a sense of remaining young in spirit. And our attitude is really important about how young or how old we 
feel because maintaining that attitude of wonder, like Mildred said, of uh, adventure, of, of wanting to always explore or learn, I think is extremely important to maintaining a sense of feeling young. So I encourage people on a daily basis, learn something new, try something in a new way. I think when we get stuck in our old ways, meaning what's familiar, what's comfortable, what's safe, what's secure, we get stuck in a rut. And that is more of a detriment to feeling old or feeling heavy versus if we're always learning or trying something new, there's always that sense of lightness that was mentioned mm. because it maintains our sense of curiosity. And, and you know, there's small ways to do it. Like uh, I, I try when I go places to never take the same route if possible. And even if that means just turn down this little street to get back over to the street that I was on and would normally take, but it's giving yourself a chance to discover something new or to go down a new path or just to, to break out of that rut because, you know, like when we're driving, there's that sense of autopilot that can happen when we go back and forth to the same place all the time. Mm -hmm. And that is autopilot is a way of not being in full and complete awareness. And so if we just break that up ever so lightly, ever so small ways, then we are able to maintain that sense of youth because isn't that really what that childlike attitude is? It's that curiosity. It's that wonder. It's that trying things just to see what it's like or what happens, which we tend to start losing as we get older because we think we can't or what would other people think or we're not supposed to or whatever the reasons are. So, so I'm reading between the lines here. Neither one of you said this, but um, what's the role of play in staying young? Well, for me, I play all the time. So it's a being set. I can't say it's a mindset because it goes through my whole body. And where it comes from is, well, you can make the choice to play or not play. And play is always more fun. And so then the game becomes, how do I take the current situation and be playful in the context of what's presented to me. So one example of that would be, you know, we are in human form. And as the years go by, we go through life transitions. Isn't it so much more wonderful to accept the stage that you are that you are, are at in a playful way? Like, for example, the stage that I'm at now, I notice that my body is changing which some may call age, right? So I can either choose to fight that, to grieve that, to be remorseful about what could have been, should have been, might have been, or I can have a different way of being with that and look at it as a glorious thing that I came to experience being human in conjunction with nature. And this is nature having her way with me. And there's gifts in every area. So I might not be as supple as I was before, or maybe never was, or whatever, but that opens the door to other types of satisfaction and other types of gifts. And the game is that I play with myself is let's explore and discover them. So that's where I kind of go with it. And, and play is distinguished from another way of being in the world by, by what? Well, I think it's 
directly related to not taking yourself too seriously. Ah, this is why I have a problem. (laughs) (laughs) As my co-host will undoubtedly affirm (laughs) offline with any of you who are so inclined to inquire. (laughs) John, we're not here to make a liar of you, so we shall not comment. (laughs) Oh, man. I see. How about you on the, on the, on play? Do you have any thoughts about about play? Well, it's the willingness to see that you can bring play into everything. So, for example, um, the the store that I work out of, one of the things that I do for them is I create their uh, like uh, flyers for events and things to hand out in the store and that kind of thing. And whenever I'm putting them together, I could just take last month's and put in the information for this month and now it's good to go because you know it's just a task it's just a a little job that has to be done it's just that ordinary everyday thing instead i can approach it each time and say hmm let me play with this a little bit so maybe it just means i'm going to play with the image that's on there or i'm going to play with the layout a little bit or i'm going to change the font just see what it looks like you know but it's this idea of making everything play even if it's just playing with the idea or playing around with it a little bit you might go back to what it was but at least you've played around with it and that might spark a creative idea or something that you may use in the future for that or for something else but that wouldn't that spark wouldn't have happened if you hadn't had that moment of play. And there's a, there's a game that, uh, you know, you can play, um, which I call the game of beauty. And so if you've ever, you know, like the Where's Waldo idea, then instead you just walk around and you always say, where's the beauty? Mm. And so you're always looking to just find amidst what looks like all of the normal stuff around you, where is the beauty in that? And it may be something small. It may be something that you hadn't noticed, but is really big. Right, um, right, it may right. be in the way everything is suddenly falling into place and fitting together when it seemed to be all disorganized. But it's just that where's the beauty game to to always be looking and to always be curious and to always kind of finding the thing that is appealing or is satisfying rather than why can't this be different? Mm. Yeah, look look for the beauty in something and and then go enjoy it. Yeah. But, okay. And one thing oh yeah, John just wanted to add, um, on the on the topic of beauty, there's a beautiful Navajo night prayer and there's various variations of it. You find it all over the internet. But basically it goes something like this, beauty before me, beauty behind me, beauty beside me. You know, I walk in beauty. So it's cultivating the beauty mindset so that as you say, if you say this to yourself every day or whatever works for you, then you start to welcome in the vibration of beauty and you become more aware of it. Mm. Yeah. And does beauty have an impact on on rejuvenation and, and youth? Of course. Well, it's it's the willingness to see beauty in all things, and beauty is not something that is defined or prescribed by our society or by other people. Uh, you know, it, it makes me think like the Japanese, the the ceramics workers when they were making tea bowls and stuff. 
you know, one of the the masters was making a T-bowl and after he had made it, fired it and glazed it or whatever it is they do exactly, um, you know, he takes it out and that, and there's a crack in it. And so the older way of looking at that, <laughs> theoretically, the more mature way would be to say, oh, shoot, this bowl cracked. So I need to get rid of that one and I'm going to have to make another one. But instead, this master said, oh, why look at that crack. And he filled it with gold to call attention to it. And it was calling attention to the imperfection that actually made it beautiful in its own unique way. Mm. So that that uniqueness of beauty in whatever it is that we're thinking about observing or doing is what maintains that sense of usefulness in the sense of always seeing it in a new way and not letting us get stuck in thinking of what it's supposed to look like and it didn't match the rules or or that kind of thing. Yeah. So does resistance contribute to old age? And, and a, a willingness to to surrender resistance somehow uh, create room for a rejuvenating force in your life? I feel that resistance would make things tighter and heavier. I don't see a lot of value in the resistance if you want to follow the path of beauty and Youthfulness, and, and as I'm saying this, I'm wondering if one first step might be to remove the association with youthfulness with age. Mm. Oh, interesting. Because we're so conditioned to look at the vibration of, of youthfulness in the context of age, where really let's let's work at getting rid of that. Youthfulness is in the realm that it that's not around time and space. It's a spirit or soul level around things being awesome or looking at things with new eyes. Mm. Oh, I see. I like that. Okay, so so what I've heard is awe, curiosity, beauty, uh, a, a relinquishing of resistance. What else? Was there? Did I miss something? With the Japanese bowl? Uh, yeah. Okay. Yes. Um, the imperfections about about not having judgment about what's what the way things are supposed to be. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Any last thoughts about how to keep ourselves young? John, do you consider yourself young? I'm I'm working on it. For a long time, I would have said unequivocally yes. Um. Over the last few years, it hasn't. I haven't really been able to hold on to that uh, self-image, and I'm. I think that I'm on the way to recovering it. Yes. How about you, Mother? Then do you feel, consider yourself young? Oh yeah. And I see. I do. Mm-hmm. Great. All right. Well, with that, uh, my two incredibly youthful and. Uh, ageless, 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 ageless is the word. Try ageless, ageless, <laughs> ageless co-hosts. I would like to thank them uh, and invite all of you to uh, stay tuned for the rest of the show. It's going to be a good one. Thanks, Mildred Lynn and Hi C. Have a great show, John. Sure. And we'll be right back. At Firefly Willows L I V E, we're working hard to be your trusted source for fun, enlightening, and heart-centered information and community. And we're passionate about the art of transformative media. 
the new leading edge of communication in our highly connected, media-rich world. If you're passionate about facilitating change and you have gifts or ideas you'd like to share, come join us. Host a show or be a guest or connect us to an amazing speaker or teacher whose message is too good to miss. There's always room for courageous, knowledgeable change makers, inspired artists, and new ideas. Let us know you're interested. Send an email to info at fireflywillows.com. We're Firefly Willows, L-I-V-E, helping you find and shine your inner light. Welcome back. This is Convergence, and I'm your host, John Carousella. And with me for today's spirited conversation is Lincoln Cannon. Lincoln is a technologist and philosopher and a leading advocate of technological evolution and post-secular religion. His professional background includes leadership roles in software engineering and marketing technology and consulting roles in emerging technology. His formal education is in business administration and philosophy. But the reason that Lincoln is with us today is that he's the president and founder of the Mormon Transhumanist Association. Lincoln, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, John. Happy to be here with you. So this is uh, this is an interesting topic. First of all, Mormon transhumanism seems might seem like a bit of an oxymoron unless we dig into it a little bit. So can you provide us with at least some kind of definition of what transhumanism is? Sure. Yeah, transhumanism, a kind of vanilla definition of it would be the ethical use of technology to extend human abilities. Most transhumanists would agree with something approximating that. So okay, and, and when we talk about extending human capacities or capabilities, what, give us an example. It can be anything from things as simple as wearing glasses to improve your eyesight, wearing clothing to adjust to the environments around us, to much more future-looking, perhaps controversial things like extending life, improving health indefinitely, um, making ourselves much more intelligent than we currently are using technology, um, all kinds of things that, that, you know, genetic engineering, cloning, um, all kinds of cybernetic technologies. There's all sorts of controversial things that also come up in transhumanism. Okay, so that's that's going to be kind of fun. <laughs> We're going to talk about that. Um, and for for those of us who don't know, and even for those of us who think we do, tell us about Mormonism, and and in particular the aspects of Mormonism that you find compatible with or or informative to transhumanism. That's a deep question. I could talk about that one alone for a long time. Let, let's start with saying, however, just a, a simple definition that I think most Mormons would agree with, and that is that Mormonism at its core is an immersive discipleship of Jesus Christ. And it's an aspiration, not so much a religion about Jesus, but an aspiration to live the religion of Jesus, which is to console and to heal and to raise each other. And from a Mormon transhumanist perspective, that consoling and healing and raising should not just end with whatever abilities my natural body is capable of, but that I should extend those abilities and use the means, the tools, the technologies around me to do those things better than I could do without. So when talking about Mormonism, 
you know, Mormonism beyond what I just said means lots of different things to lots of different people. There are Mormons who are, you know, much more dogmatic than others, much more by the book, rule, rule keeping type Mormons than other Mormons are. That's true of persons of all religions. There's also Mormons that are very, um, progressive and liberal in their views about how they use scripture or tradition or whatever. And, uh, as it turns out, there's both relatively conservative and relatively progressive Mormon transhumanists. So we get Mormon transhumanists across the whole spectrum. Now, most Mormon transhumanists tend towards the progressive end of the spectrum. Uh, but there are many aspects of the more conservative end of Mormonism that are very compatible with transhumanism as well. So we do have members of the association that are at that end of the spectrum. So that's, in a nutshell, a way of responding to the question, you know, what is Mormonism? It's a whole bunch of things. But at its core, again, I'd emphasize that it's primarily, you know, it's a form of Christianity, but an immersive one. And what I mean by immersive is that attempt to take on the identity of Christ, follow Jesus' example, as Jesus invites in the Bible, and to really do something about it with the means at hand. Okay, so Mormonism as a religion, does it have a perspective on the final disposition of the soul, so to speak? Mormonism is a very broad-visioned religion. The The ultimate conception of Mormonism is that humanity should progress and become like God, that we should become gods ourselves, as the founder of Mormonism, Joseph Smith, put it. And that, of course, is an incredibly controversial subject among Christians generally. So this idea in Mormonism that we should become like God entails that humanity has limitless potential. It also, in Mormonism, is associated with an indefinitely eternal, even, past that none of us has any kind of finite beginning and none of us has any finite terminate, termination to our future and, and going forward. So the human spirit, the human mind, the soul, in Mormonism the soul is the combination of body and mind or body and spirit. Um, in Mormonism that being has no beginning and it has no end. And each one of us, or perhaps more particularly us collectively, working together as a community, have divine, sublime potential. Okay, so is there, a pers- is there a perspective that correlates to or relates to, for example, reincarnation? Some early Mormons had notions that are very similar to the idea of reincarnation. Uh, for example, some called it multiple mortal probations, and the idea was that we are here having an experience, we learn certain things in this life, we die, and then subsequently our mind or our spirit, the intelligence of which we you know that is a part of us now, goes on to be um, incarnated in another mortal probation where we progress even further, hopefully, <laughs> and then go on multiple times um, in our progress toward becoming like God, like we conceive God to be. Uh, most Mormons today don't think of eternal progression, we call it eternal progression, in terms of multiple mortal probations any longer. And I'm not sure that that was ever like the dominant understanding. It was held by some Mormons. What most Mormons will will do today, they'll look at it and they'll say, hey, we believe in eternal progression, that our aim is to become like God, progressing grace by grace, we would say, or step by step, a little bit by a little bit, over time, perhaps eternally long periods of time. They would say that this is our one mortal probation. 
subsequently will be immortal, but we'll continue to have to learn things and grow and progress and continue to try to be um, more more compassionate and continue to exercise our creative capacity. So why would there only be one mortal probation? Philosophically, why would that be the case? Well, there are pragmatic reasons, I, I think, why most Mormons have latched on to the notion that there's one mortal probation, and that is that it emphasizes the importance of the experience we're having right now. Ah, okay. And, you know, beyond that, however, there are some very interesting ideas among Mormon authorities historically. Like I said, this idea of multiple mortal probations, one of the ideas associated with that is that Adam, who traditionally understood, maybe we can talk about that more later, I personally don't embrace the most traditional interpretations of Adam, but Adam, as traditionally understood, was a god who came to earth, gave up immortality, took on mortality, and gave birth to the race of humanity so that they could have experience and learn to become gods themselves. Uh, that was that was one perspective shared by an early leader of Mormonism, Brigham Young, in fact, the one who led the Mormon pioneers from the eastern United States to Utah, held mm-hmm. that perspective. Okay. And I found it interesting that you said Adam gave birth to humanity, not Eve. Yeah, so the the doctrine, as as popularly referenced among uh, students of Mormon history, is called the Adam-God doctrine. That's the only reason I said Adam. Although, if you want to talk about perspectives on Adam um, and Eve, my personal perspective on that is that if you look at the biblical text, and if you look at Mormon creation texts beyond the biblical text for the creation story, you'll find intentional equivocation in both the gender and the number of Adam, and Eve, of course, in association with Adam. And my my personal perspective on Adam and Eve is that they are uh, primitive humanity, both in in the pre-human species sense, emergent into moral agency, as well as on an individual level. We are each Adam and Eve as we um, grow as children up to the point where we start to become aware of ethics, of what of what mm, is right. good, what is evil, the idea even of goods and evils. Yeah, ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny even after you're born. Yeah, I agree. Right, into your into your social socialization and your sensibilities of of your environment. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Um, okay, so so I was sort of probing along those lines because. Lincoln and I have uh, had some conversations outside the studio where we've talked about things like uh, death and immortality and whether there's utility to one versus the other. So, Lincoln, I want to encourage you to riff a little bit on, you know, this one mortal probation and the idea that transhumanism seeks to arbitrarily extend life in this reality, I won't say in this in in the body because I think there's some stories there as well. But let's let's talk a little bit about mortal probation extended indefinitely. <laughs> yeah. So when we talk about extending mortality indefinitely, I'd I'd suggest that we might be engaging a contradiction in terms. If it if it becomes truly indefinite then what what we're saying is that we've managed somehow to overcome aging. We've managed to overcome traditional notions of death, at least. And 
the way that technology is heading, it it seems, um, depending on whether certain hypotheses in the philosophy of mind and related subjects are true or not, it seems that we may be able to become immune to death if we can persist in the same sorts of ways that we that our software can persist in a decentralized way, in a backed up way, in a way that, you know, no matter how hard people try, you pretty much have to wipe out the entire civilization to get rid of one little tiny piece of software. Okay, so so distributing yourself into the hologram of data scape that then your identity is entangled with everything else. Yeah, and it becomes very hard to get rid of that kind of information. Right. Now, are are we talking about when we talk about this from a transhumanist perspective, are we talking about a preservation of a simulacrum of the self or are we talking about the indefinite extension of the activity of the self, the agency of the self? Yeah, in, great question. Of course, in science, one of the biggest unsolved problems is the problem of consciousness. What is consciousness? Nobody can answer that question scientifically today with any objective conclusivity. People will make strong claims, but the scientific community does not, has not reached an objective consensus, right. not even close, right, right. about what consciousness is. So when we ask, you know, what is being preserved, what could be preserved... Maybe to take a step back from that, we ought to first ask, well, what are we? One of the, the first thing I think that we might be able to agree on is that we're not atomic. The I that exists, as my Buddhist friends are fond to point out, is an illusion if we think of it in an atomic sense. There is no I in an atomic sense. I am a confluence, an aggregation, a pattern. Now, I think they go too far when they suggest that, therefore, the I doesn't exist at all. It's a complete illusion. I think, no, it's an extremely useful concept. I do exist in meaningful, practical ways. And that's what I mean by I, is this experience, this confluence of experience that I am, in reality, experiencing. In fact, that's the only certain thing from a philosophical perspective is that there's something to philosophize about because I'm experiencing it now. Right, so Cartesian, uh, cogito ergo sum kind of thing, right? Is the it, I, I think therefore I am, therefore I must have some consequential ramifications. Uh, that, 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 that the idea of the, of the I isn't just an ephemeral illusion. Well, yeah, we could, we could get stuck on on some philosophical technicalities there, where people will drive that back even further and say, "Well, even the concept of the I is constructing that a little bit too far." Really, all we've got is cogito, and there's no I in the cogito. Oh, I like that. I actually um, like that. I like that. But and we could even go deeper than that. In fact, I had a as a teenager what now seems to have been a very melodramatic and silly crisis, but at the time seemed very serious to me, related to all these sorts of ideas, just trying to find my foundations in life and um, a lot of that related to just questions about meaning and existence at the most basic levels and wrestling with these sorts of questions which to many people just sound like funny questions but for me at that period in my life were were deadly serious questions for for example just one or two well just that very question of what does it mean to exist 
What does it mean? Um, is there any ground for values, for moralities, for ethics? Mm. How do we know what truth is? Those sorts of questions really, really, really bothered me um, in my late teenage yeah, years. Yeah, well, good, good, good. <laughs> Kindred spirit. <laughs> the same challenges. <laughs> yeah. And and I look back on it now, and it I actually I I have to admit I find it a little bit of a little bit humorous in hindsight, and would, and would find it completely humorous had I not felt the feelings I felt at the time and remember them still because they weren't humorous feelings at no, the time. Right, they right, were right. they were some really challenging feelings at the time. So was it some was it at some point in this um, deep self examination that you could point to? where you began to align yourself with the uh, the energies of transhumanism or the, the momentum of transhumanism? How did you get to transhumanism as a as a cause or an avocation? Yeah, the, the quick answer to that is that when I discovered the word transhumanism and what it meant, I recognized that I had been a transhumanist for all of my conscious life. From childhood forward. Oh. And um, so let me elaborate a little bit yes, on that. Yes, please, it must. As a child, my, my parents um, my parents were Mormon. Mm-hmm. We were fairly traditional family. We went to church, you know, we talked about religion at home. And one of, one of the concepts that they taught me as a child that um, always resonated with me and that just made a lot of sense to me was that we are children of God, and as children, we should grow up to become God, adult gods. Right. And that just made a lot of sense to me as a child. And oftentimes when non-Mormons hear this concept, they think that it's, it sometimes rubs them really the wrong way. It seems extremely blasphemous and arrogant, um, idolatrous. What I don't think comes through to most non-Mormons that haven't been raised in the culture is that when Mormons talk about becoming like God, we're talking about not merely kind of this guy with that can zap you with thunderbolts. We're talking about a radically compassionate creator. That's what we mean by God. And that kind of God is a God of community that exists in relationships of love every bit as much as it's a matter of having incredible creative capacity yeah so uh, let's let's just uh, explore this a little bit more because i know that um it is kind of a surprising i think it's more surprising to people in i would say traditional christianity than it would be to neo-pagan spiritualists that the transcendent qualities of the divine could manifest themselves in us as we exist in this reality, right? I mean, I think we we are starting to get the sense that, you know, why not? Why wouldn't God, why wouldn't the divine be able to exercise itself through me in some very powerful way if I were in proper alignment with the intentions of that divinity? And we sort of get spooked by that because the first thing that comes to mind is the egoic expression of power, 
right? But what you're saying is that... Which can be abused incredibly. It was always, it, it, you know, by definition, you know, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely, in the flawed form of the human is, what, is the, the story that we're told. So the, so you're raised in a culture where where the capacity to be to become God, to evolve into godness, divinity, is impressed in into you or onto you from the beginning. How does it affect your notion of power and the expression of yeah. power? That's that's actually a subject we explore a lot in Mormonism. The notions of appropriate and inappropriate applications of power, and I'll add, although we explore it extensively, we also fail to live up to our aspirations far more often than any of us would like. But our aspirations are shaped both, I would say, in terms of some instruction about how power should be used and in terms of some mythology about the kinds of power we might aspire to and the kinds of power we might aspire to avoid. So I'll start with maybe the mythological explanation. Mythologically in Mormonism, there are two would-be kinds of gods. One is represented by Christ, the other by Satan. Christ, as described in the New Testament, would have us become joint heirs in the glory of God raising each other up together. Satan, as described in the New Testament, is that which would raise itself above all else that is called God, declaring itself God. So there we see a, con- a contrast in two different types of God-hoods. One, communal, mutually lifting of each other. The other, egotistical, self-rising above the other. And so clearly, of course, as Christians, we would advocate following the model of Christ in that. And then going more to the instructional angle, one of my favorite passages of Scripture, in fact, the only passage of Scripture my my father, my biological father, ever asked me to memorize as a child, is a passage from Joseph Smith in a, in a book we call The Doctrine and Covenants, which is unique Mormon Scripture. And in that passage of Scripture, it's section 121 of The Doctrine and Covenants. In that passage of Scripture, Joseph Smith, um, speaking in the voice of God, um, as is the tradition of the prophetic voice, he he talks about how when we receive power, we almost immediately abuse it. Or even when we suppose ourselves to have received it, we immediately start to abuse it. And that authority alone, when it's given us, especially religious authority when it's given us, cannot over time be maintained in a powerful way unless we use it in some very particular ways. And the ways that he says this authority should be used to generate real power, enduring power, is patience, love, brotherly kindness, love um, love unfeigned, um, and in ways that are non-compulsory. And a very interesting thing at the end of that passage, he describes power, the real enduring kind of power, as something which will flow to you. Not something that you go out and grab and take from others, but it flows to you without compulsory means forever and ever. So that in Mormonism is the ideal expression of power, is the kind of power that arises when I 
love people around me, when I serve people around me, when I lift others up around me. And then the funny thing that happens when we all do that for each other is we build stronger communities that can do amazing things. And in fact, that, that reminds me of a, sec, a second thing I wanted to mention. You know, we were talking about what, why I recognized that I already had been a transhumanist my whole life. I told you part of it was this Mormon idea that we should become gods. Right, right. And the other part of it, another thing that my parents taught me when I was a child that always made sense to me as well, even when I went through functionally atheistic periods later in my life, these ideas were still there and just they made sense if anything did to me. Um, it's the idea that, as expressed in the New Testament by James, for example, the epistle of James, that faith without works is dead. We can believe all we want in all kinds of things. People do have all kinds of beliefs. But what separates substantial faith from passive belief or inconsequential belief is that we act on it. We do something about it. We build with it. We, we use the means at hand to make something of it. And so if you combine those two ideas that are quite emphasized in Mormonism relative to most versions of Christianity, the idea that we should become God, the idea that faith without works is dead, when you combine those ideas, you get this very practical religious impulse to do something about this aspiration to become like God. That it's not enough to say, oh, we should become like God. But rather, oh, we should become like God and we should do something about that. What can we do? And so that naturally leads people to say, well, what could we do to become like God? Well, what do we imagine God to be? God, in the very least, has always been a projection of humanity. In the very least. I'm not saying that's all God is. But in the very least, it's been a projection. And so what do we project God to be? Well, God has often been either a negation or an extension of human vices or virtues. And so we, ex- we extend our, our virtues out, maybe to the superlative. We extend our vices out, maybe to the superlative. We negate those and we say, well, God must be something like that. Hmm. And so then we try to do something to be more like that. And we, and sometimes that doing of something is maybe ironically a choice not to do something in some cases in the negation senses, right? So once you've established that you have this vision of, of the sublime, of the divine, of God, and that you feel this drive to do something about it, to be more like that, and to use whatever means are available in ethical, moral, beautiful, good ways, the next thing you ask is, well, what means do I have? What can I use? And in our modern world, like never before, to an extent never before seen, it's becoming increasingly clear that technology is a kind of power that can be used to change ourselves, our relationships, our world in unprecedented ways. And so you can already see how somebody would make the mental leap or connect the dots from this very practical religious attitude that a Mormon child would inherit growing up in a pro-technology community, Mormons like technology, and real and think eventually, you know what, we should be trying to use technology to do this work. 
Mm. to become more like God, to okay. become more compassionate and more creative. All right. So on that note, let's take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to explore the transhumanist side of Lincoln. All right. We'll be right back. You're listening to Convergence with host John Carousella on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Find out more at fireflywillows.com. Enjoy the show. Welcome back. This is Convergence, and I'm your host, John Carousella, in spirited conversation with Lincoln Cannon. Lincoln is the founder of the Mormon Transhumanist Association, one of the founders. Fourteen of us. Fourteen founders, okay. All right, so before the break, we were talking about um, the trend line from... um, the Mormon upbringing and the, and the uh, impression as a as a young person in that faith that you can become like God and that's the ultimate aspiration uh, and the, the connecting the dots from that to doing something about it and and using technology to do something about it and I just wanted to touch on something that uh, for me there's a there's a contrast and maybe you can explain it as something other than a dichotomy you talked about the words in in the DNC uh, from Joseph Smith that said that that the exercise of power and the, and the the capacity to exercise power comes when you act in a loving way in a in an uplifting way to those around you uh, and you don't seek power but power flows to you and it seems like that's power as a gift as a consequence of behaving in a loving way. So I'll call that the power that comes through loving kindness. The other power that you talked about, you didn't really call it power. You you talked about it as aspiring to to be more like God by potentially using technology to map ourselves onto our model of God. right? And that feels more like the power that the ego has the capacity to to capture, right? And and for me, this is, I think I've shared this with you once before, this is the contrast between shamanism, which is the power of loving kindness and surrender, uh, and sorcery, which is the power of the ego to manipulate the, 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 the to, manip- to manipulate our experience. How do you, do you see them as contrasting or conflicting? Yeah, this actually reminds me a lot of the debate among two different kinds of libertarians. Libertarians who define liberty in positive terms and libertarians who define liberty in negative terms. Of course, liberty defined in negative terms means you you have liberty if nobody is oppressing you intentionally. Okay. You could be lying, bleeding on the side of the road about to die, but you have liberty because nobody is currently oppressing you. Um, my perspective on that is you have no liberty if you have no options. Um, so real liberty comes not merely by not being impressed, not by the lack of oppression. Real liberty comes through empowerment. Um, so this gets us back to the notion of power and uh, becoming like God and love. So if we talk about love, I think it might be a mistake to to talk about it 
in an excessively abstract sense. So um, it, for the same reason that we get into all kinds of logical problems when we talk about God in the superlative sense as omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent, we can do that. But once we engage in that rhetoric, we open up lots of room for misunderstanding and um, and lack of careful thought. When we start talking about love in an excessively abstract way, the same sort of thing happens. So when we talk about so as moving away from the excessive abstraction to the practical, what is love in practice? Well, love is a way I feel. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a way I feel in my body. It's in a, a way I express myself to people around me that I claim to love. It's oh, it's maybe um, expressed in some services. It's maybe expressed in caressing. It's maybe expressed in um, sometimes relinquishing, um, not doing something. But it, in every case, love in a practical sense involves my body in the very least. Now, some some might make an argue for something more abstract than that, and we could we could debate it. But I, I think that most of us would be comfortable saying at least that our body is an excellent tool for the application of love. And if that's true, then why would we want to stop with just our own body being an excellent tool to apply love? We might also want to offer somebody a seat and a chair that's been constructed from wood and nails and tools. We might want to offer somebody some food that has been grown through agricultural technologies. We might want to offer a person some consolation. Um, Maybe we'll reach out to them through a telephone or through the Internet. We might want to try to heal them through medical technologies. We may want to try to repair the environment in which they live through all sorts of um, technological interventions that may be possible. If we limit love to only something very abstract in my mind, that's a very weak and I would argue almost non-loving kind of love. You know, faith without works is dead. I'd argue love without works is equally dead. Love is most itself when it's tangible, substantiated in our actions, not merely in our thoughts, in the way that we shape the world around us, not by controlling the world in a way that, for example, John wouldn't want the world to be, but by me reaching out to John and saying, thinking, first of all, well, how would John like the world to be? Then asking him, John, how would you like the world to be? And then me thinking, what could I do that's consistent with the values of others around us, because there's always a third party, right, right. to make John's world more like that. So this is the power at your disposal through the ego, in other words, through the exercise of technology and human cleverness, that is offered but not used to coerce. Offered but not used to coerce. In other words, you have the power 
you don't use it of your own volition. You use it when you make an invitation and the invitation is accepted. Maybe so. Um, I I think, though, that by understanding power in juxtaposition to love, I think that we might be talking about two different things. In my mind, love is the source of enduring power. All other kinds of power will have their day, but go away. But love will persist. That's my trust. Right. Um, game theoretically. Mm-hmm. Okay, right. I can't prove it to you, but I bet I can get you to gamble with me <laughs> in, in that direction. So, um, if we were to talk about love as something that in contrast to or to power, then I would say, yeah, then power is a bad thing. But I think that that's a category mistake. So I'm not suggesting that power and love are are antipodal. Okay. I'm suggesting that that they are um, that they're orthogonal, and that one can exercise power with or without love. And the the danger is this the seeking of power for the purpose of having the ability to act to be empowered while at the same time losing sight of the essential gentleness of divine love, of the power of divine love as an invitation, not as a coercion. I like that. Completely agree with how you just expressed that. So as so as flawed humans, we go out and use what I call sorcery to make iPhones and, and microphones and internet radio and all that kind of stuff. Uh, out of a sense of desire that isn't necessarily rooted in the gentle, sustaining kind of love that is divine love. What are the consequences of that for us as moral beings, leveraging technology to be more like God, more and more and more like our projection of God, when we are not very good at the fundamental harmonic of not of operating from a place of supportive, sustaining, but not coercive exercise of power. Yeah. So um, two things come to mind. The first is that creativity, in my estimation, is as essential to a robust, understanding of divinity as is compassion. Oh, that's interesting. The second thing I wanted to say is that, of course, there are many, many conceptions of God. Mine happens to be uh, the radicalization of creativity and compassion. But there are many other conceptualizations of God, and not all of them, in my estimation, of course, are worthy of worship, right, worthy right. of emulation. Sure. Mm-hmm. That would be another word I would use, maybe more secular for worship. Yeah. So, um, yeah, people will project all sorts of divinities, and by projecting them, at least implicitly, if not explicitly, shape themselves, position themselves towards those divinities. And it, but, of course... They don't all merit such emulation. (laughs) 
Okay, fair enough. To say the least. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're being humans, being toolmakers, and and having egos, and consciously or unconsciously driving our evolution ever more outside of our physical beings, right? Through the use of culture and language and metallurgy and all that kind of stuff. Um, we seem to be bringing it all back around to the re-instrumenting of our very beings through the use of technology. And this is a theme in, in transhumanism, at least in some of it, some of it. And I want to start going more into the transhumanist part of this conversation. Um, the idea that we would vanquish death using technology. Uh, why would we do that? Why not? Is, is, that, is, that, is, that the, is that the canonical response? Because uh, it might be a very legitimate response, and I and I want to honor it as okay, yeah, I'll, why not? Because it's you know might be something that we would do. So, yeah, digging digging in a little bit deeper into my in, into my simple response. Humans have the desires they have, and the values that we have, and I think it's a big mistake that people make when they define ethics in terms of any subset of these values. When we define ethics in terms of a subset of values, we're not actually being compassionate. Because? Because we're privileging a subset of values above others. So compassion, then, as I'm expressing it right now, is, is this perpetual attempt to reconcile a world where competing values, competing ethics can perhaps coexist, but even better complement each other and build each other up, ideally. And so privileging one above the other a priori um, just in advance without considering how they work together or how they could work together seems almost to be antithetical to any true morality. But but um, t- taking a step. No, I like that. I think that's fair, right? I mean, the idea that you would arbitrarily say vanquishing death is a bad idea when we all have a desire to vanquish death at some level. Um, doing that a priori is kind of, um, it's prejudicial. Well, and t- taking even a step beyond that, it's really hard to talk about there being any sort of um, morality or desire apart from living. If we're not true to life, any other desire we're expressing is at best irony. Oh, that's probably a whole show right there. <laughs> but there's there's beauty there's beauty and there's aesthetic beauty in the cycle the cycles of life and the cycle of life leading to death and uh, the composting of the organic material and, the, you know, having it feed back into the system and so on and so forth. If you vanquish death, you interrupt that. Uh, what do you make of that? That's sort of like a... like a. Yeah. There's lots of things that we experience that 
In fact, I don't know of anybody who has experienced nothing that he or she would not like to have interrupted. Um, we all experience things that we want to interrupt. Fair enough. That's the nature of, a, of tension and conflict of existence and between and among our desires and our wills and rules and environmental laws. Life is life's challenging. And some respond to that. And, you know, I'm thinking of my Buddhist friends right now by saying the right response to that is to stop desiring, to let it all go, to get beyond it all, go to nirvana. And I love my Buddhist friends, but that, in my estimation, is about as close as you can get to actually practicing a really good nihilism. <laughs> okay. So... What's the alternative then? If we're not going to say that desires and wills and rules and laws and life are things to overcome in nirvana or something like it, if that's not what we're going to say, what are we going to say about these things? And, and a Christian response to these things, a very Christian response is the idea of atonement, reconciliation, the perpetual work to bring these things together better than they are. Right. And that may be an unending work. From a Mormon perspective, it's an internal work. And that technology can play a role in helping us organize this world better and ever better and our experiences in this world, our relationships in this world, better and better to optimize for flourishing and thriving rather than trying, for example, as another alternative might be, to optimize, to mitigate suffering or something like that. So one possibility is that it comes down to the definition of and the, and the interpretation of thriving, right? And that if we choose to live forever, if we choose to in, uh, invest ourselves in, in physical immortality, we might not actually be optimizing for thriving because of the consequential damage that we would induce on the environment in which we're supposedly thriving. Right, locking up, lock, locking up organic material forever, um, locking up uh, resources that could enrich the the experience of all of us uh, over time because we have children being born and and. Uh, enough resources to, around to feed them and still maintain a rich, you know, diverse biosphere, et cetera, et cetera. It might be that living forever is actually suboptimal. Compared to what? Compared to uh, living for some period of time and then letting go so that the community can thrive. In what way? And so, I mean, right. I'm right. basically agreeing with your original statement that it all comes back to what we mean by thriving. Right. And... My response to that is that I, I would hope that we can increasingly find ourselves living in a world that recognize the value of a pluralism in what constitutes thriving. Right. Um, you know, that's kind of a, that's kind of a, a correlate to my perception of what divinity even is. If divinity is radicalized compassion and creativity, um, that means there's more than one kind of thriving, or creativity means nothing at all. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. I concur. Uh, all right. So as we extend 
our technological vision through through the practice of technology, we start to realize more and more of what might be possible through technology. We start to realize that there's that we're approaching some very interesting salient points, like well, like the singularity. Ray Kurzweil, a noted futurist guy, right? Is he a transhumanist? Implicitly, yes. He prefers to call himself a singularitarian. Okay. All right. So explain to us the singularity. Yeah. The singularity is the idea that at some point in time, we may create a computer or a robot or a synthetic intelligence that is sufficiently capable on its own of creating another that it will do so without human intervention. And that may be the last invention that humanity need make from a one um, from one rather dystopian perspective on the matter. Is it necessarily dystopian? If you value the continuation of human forms of thriving and flourishing, then yeah, that would be rather dystopian because... Um, Humanity, from the perspe- this particular perspective of being superseded by our machines, um, doesn't wouldn't have much of a future after that. In fact, some fear that those machines would treat humans much like humans currently treat ants, with not much consideration, generally speaking. Um, so that that's one view of the technological singularity is when artificial intelligence kind of takes off on its own. More broadly speaking, quite a few transhumanists think of the singularity as an extension of accelerating technological change. The most popularly understood form of accelerating technological change, of course, is Moore's Law. Going back to the 1960s, Gordon Moore of Intel recognized that the ratio of of complexity to cost of computing components is doubling every two years or less, and it's been doing that now for 50, it's the 50th anniversary of that mm-hmm. this year. And um, that that's not going to stop soon. Now we're, we're getting closer and closer to the smallest uh, way that we could produce the current yeah, the data structures are getting pretty small. But the architectures could change. We right. could go to quantum quantum computers, computing. biological computers. There's other architectures that could come along that could make the trend continue. And it's already and the trend, as Rick Kurzweil likes to point out, the trend has already continued through multiple architectures in the past, not just transistors as we know them now, but also vacuum t- vacuum tubes and such. Right. So transhumanists like to extend this idea of the, of the singularity a little bit more broadly and say, well, accelerating technological change is continuing and at some point it will be it will be so fast and the consequences so dramatic that given our current capacities as humans biological humans as we are today that we could not predict or control those changes and it would be kind of a potentially cataclysmic event mm-hmm. in, in even a broader sense than just kind of AI now transhumanists will also point out and this is where I land among what I've been describing, that as our computing power, our technological capacity has become increasingly sophisticated, faster, smaller, cheaper, uh, more pervasive, more distributed, 
it's also become increasingly intimate. So it used to be far away in big warehouses, and it was on our desks. It's now in our pockets. We're building in our pacemakers. People are getting implants in their bodies. And it's likely that that will continue to be the case, that that will continue to be more intimately integrated with our technologies for all kinds of reasons, for health reasons, for professional reasons, for um, for, for fun reasons, just for fun, right? All kinds of for reasons. the experience, the thrill. So, in that event, um, which is a more transhumanist take on the singularity, in contrast to the strictly artificial intelligence version of of the singularity, it's not our machines that take off without us, and it's not a singularity for us in that moment because our capacities have changed. But what it is is something, a continuation of the kinds of experiences that we're having now, but perhaps quite different than we imagined our future to be within decades. Mm, some okay. some people, when they think of technological change and they imagine, oh, someday we'll have the ability to, I don't know, for example, connect through neurotech on an emotional level with somebody that we love and have a really... Really unimaginably intimate experience. Right. They think, well, that's hundreds of years away. Most transhumanists that buy into the idea of accelerating technological change will tell you, no, that's not hundreds of years away. That's decades at most away. Right. So what's the, uh, what's the likelihood that we are already living in an environment where the technologies that are underpinning and underwriting our experience are already technologies that are beyond our comprehension. And we've already passed the singularity and we're, if not living in the matrix, at least uh, unaware of the actual dimensionality of our existence and the part of us that's awake to this experience is just part of a game. Yeah. So, or if not, a, yeah, a game, a game in the broadest sense that it's sure. that it's an exercise in having an experience. Sure. Our our one mortal probation, as our role playing game, massively parallel <laughs> multiplayer online role playing game. <laughs> That's right. The answer that to that question depends. So I'll tell you my answer after I tell you the general answer. Yeah, there's a, there's a, there's some I know there's some sort of transhumanist thesis about this. Yeah. So the, the general answer depends on your own assessment, you as John or you as whoever's listening to this recording. It depends on your individual assessment of the future of computing capacity. If you're open to the idea that computing capacity will continue to improve, increase, and perhaps dramatically so going in the future, like it has already quite dramatically increased, the next question that you might ask yourself is what? What would we do with all of that computing capacity in the future? Imagine that imagine that we make computers that are, you know, supercomputers the size of like whole planets. Imagine that in the very, very distant future. Gigantic, powerful, computronium computers, whatever you want to imagine. <laughs> okay. Supercomputers. What would we do with such things? Well, um, we might use them to have fun. We might use them for military purposes. We might use them for economic purposes. We 
might continue doing all sorts of things that we do with computers today. And one of the things that we do with computers today is we run simulations of our past. And that's actually really valuable for lots of both scientific and entertainment purposes and military purposes for that matter. So when we run simulations of our past, we're trying to learn things. Or, for example, if you, um, if you, if you go into World of Warcraft, that's kind of a pseudo simulation of human past. You're using swords and, of course, there's orcs and those weren't around historically. But, well, we don't know that. Well, <laughs> good point. Um, there are more things in heaven and hell that are dreamt of in your philosophy ratio. Stranger things, as, as uh, Shakespeare would say. But yeah, so, we do all kinds of things with our simulation technology today. So extend that in the future with massive amounts of computing and power. And then throw in one hypothesis, which is the hypothesis we referred to earlier when we were talking. Um, and that is what well, we referred to the problem earlier. We talked about the problem of consciousness. What is consciousness? Well, a popular theory in the philosophy of mind is that consciousness is substrate independent. And what philosophers of mind mean by that is that you and I have consciousness that is somehow or another associated with our biological bodies. If I mess around with my biological brain, I can substantially change my consciousness and I can change yours too. We pretty darn good evidence of that in, in, in the lab, right? So we have consciousness. It's related to this biological body that we have. But the theory of substrate independence in the philosophy of mind is that consciousness could be reproduced on other kinds of substrates, not just biological substrates. And that consciousness, whether it's produced by the, the um, substrate or whether it's attracted by the substrate, we're not making or any claims one way or the other. Or intended by the substrate. No claims one way or the other. Whatever the case may be, that our current Substrate, biological substrate, is not the only substrate that could manifest consciousness. Okay. So if that's a true hypothesis, if that proves true, which nobody knows right now, then what we could do with massive amounts of computing power in the future is run detailed simulations of our evolutionary history, whether for scientific purposes or for entertainment purposes or whatever, so detailed that the inhabitants of those simulated worlds are conscious. Right. Because the sufficient computing power exists and it's substrate independent that you could create a substrate that had the capacity to channel or uh, generate a consciousness that was self-aware. That's right. And why would we do that? Well, because we could learn things from it or it could be really fun. I don't know. Whatever the reason. We could certainly watch. We could watch it. It could be a great TV show. Whatever. Now, there's all kinds of moral issues that are being raised right now, and we could talk about those. But the question is, do you think that's possible? If you think it's possible, and if you think that humanity in our distant future, no matter how long it takes, will ever have that ability, and we might do that many times, then as it turns out, just based on the laws of probability, this is just pure mathematics at this point, we are almost certainly living in an ancestor simulation already. And that's called the simulation argument that I just shared with you. So, so, and the reason is because we've already witnessed this extraordinary evolution of technological capacity 
and the likelihood that we happen to be the ones doing it first over millennia of millennia of universal experience, the experience of the age of the universe, it's a pretty small probability that we're just the first ones. And more so in the future, if, if ever we go on to run many simulations of our own evolutionary past, then um, each one that we run decreases the likelihood that we were the first or the only to do so. And that we're, and it increases the likelihood that we're actually living in such an ancestor simulation ourselves. And how does that make you feel? <laughs> uh, I I find it inspiring and provocative and liberating in many ways. Um, so part of the reason for that is that there is extraordinary extraordinary resonance between this idea and the religious tradition that I inherited from my family and my ancestors and culture. In Mormonism, we aspire to become like God. There's two very important aspects to that, as I express it. One, we've talked about a lot, compassion. The other, we haven't talked about a whole lot, but we have talked about it in passing, is creativity or creation. There is no greater expression of creativity than the creation of a whole world. A world is the capacity to create everything that we imagine that can happen in a world. So a world is a sort of meta-creation. The ability to create a world is a godly act from a Mormon perspective. It is the ultimate godly act um, in combi combined with the ultimate godly acts of compassion in conjunction with that. So one, it um, I, I've been pre-programmed by my family and my heritage and my culture to be inspired by such an idea in the first place. But in the second place, on reflection on the idea, I, I think that we could learn a lot by doing things like that. And I think that even if we imagine ourselves being in one, it doesn't change. Like Our world no less real. The things we experience are no less real uh, as an implication of any of this. And, I, and our consciousness, sort of uh, based, on the, based on our previous notion, our consciousness isn't any less real either. No. Regardless of the substrate that it's operating on whether whether it's a, whether it's a fabricated substrate or not i mean ultimately it is a fabricated substrate because it's fabricated in the factory that is the womb it's fabricated in something it's fabricated in something right That's so right. why would that be any why would it be any less uh sacred or precious if it were manufactured intentionally versus manufactured accidentally that's exactly right. And so this is what actually brings up some of the ethical issues that I alluded to a few mo minutes ago. If in the distant future we were to choose to emulate our evolutionary history and create worlds with self-aware, conscious beings in them, some would argue that there's something unethical about that if it's a world like ours because there's so much suffering in our world. Mm, okay. Right? Problem of evil, the classic problem of evil. Um, and if we have the power to, to prevent that, and yet we enable it and do it, that says that we're not very good persons. We're not very compassionate, right? Because we created this world and people are go they're suffering in it. We well, should fix all these well, problems. Then wouldn't we, wouldn't we have to level the same charge on the creator? That's right. That, so that's the classical theistic problem, right? The problem of evil is that... Um, 
if there's a God that created our world, then clearly that God must not be a very nice guy because this world has problems. That's the argument. Well, my response to that is that depends entirely on what we as creators or our creator of this world, assuming we have one, which I trust we do, that depends on what that creator is optimizing for. If the creator were optimizing to mitigate suffering, then this creation is an utter failure. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> and the best way to optimize to mitigate for suffering is to not create in the first place. Do not have children if you are optimizing to mitigate suffering. The best way to mitigate suffering is not to create. There will be no suffering among that which right, is That is certainly the optimized, the, 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 in, the, in the limit, that's optimal. So if there is a creator of this world, that creator was not optimizing to mitigate suffering. That creator had other intents. Now, were those intents good? People will argue about that. Well, first of all, of course, we'll argue about whether there's a creator at all. Next step, if we agree that there might be one, what are the intentions of that creator? And so I think in that case, we have to step back again to ourselves and say, well, why would we create? Why do we create? And there's some things that we're creating right now. We conceive children and bring them into this world. Why do we choose to do that? Assuming we're doing it intentionally. Some of us do it intentionally. Some of us don't. Assuming we're doing it intentionally, why? What's the value we're giving that? And then another step beyond that, some of us, a smaller number of us, are actually engaged in attempting to program artificial intelligence or to create computers that exercise capacities that are similar or superior to the human and some of us suppose that in doing so, either now or in the future, those computers will gain measures, if not greater measures, of consciousness than what we're now experiencing ourselves. And if we're engaging in that intentionally, why would we do such a thing? Well, one question, one question is, are we engaging in that consciously, not just intentionally, but consciously? In other words, sure, somebody's trying to do it, but... Are they actually thinking through with their complete capacities why they're doing it? Surely some are not. And surely all of us can improve in our intentionality and our reflection. You know, just think of the simplest form of this that I just described, the human who chooses intentionally to have a child. Mm -hmm. How intentional are we even about that? Right. We could be more so in all cases. There's always a way to be more intentional and to be more thoughtful. But at a certain point, there's also just the hard practicalities of life. Um, you either make a choice or you don't, damn it, at a certain point. <laughs> right, you're making, right, 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 right. So, yes, I mean, that can come both Okay, ways. so fair enough. So at the level of making the decision, we're making the decision to create these artificial intelligences or, or attempting to. Yeah. Why are we doing it? Yeah, and so I'm not proposing... I'm not proposing any one answer by asking these questions. Mm -hmm. I'm saying that these right. are ways to give us insight to trajectories by which we might imagine the intentionality of future creators or past creators oh, of the world. Okay, I see the linkage. Mm -hmm. um, in any case, I, I went through a period of, of time in my life when, although I didn't openly or explicitly, even to myself, identify as an atheist, I was functionally an atheist for a period of time. And one of the big drivers for that was this problem of evil. This idea that, you know what, couldn't God have made this world better if there really is a God, a really, if there really is a creator? 
and it was a troubling issue for me. And long story short, you could talk about this for a long time. I eventually came to the conclusion that if there is a creator of this world, and if, two ifs here, they're both important, and if that creator is moral in at least some way, the only goal that I could imagine compatible with my experience of this world, including the suffering in this world, both that I've experienced and I've observed or heard of others experiencing, is the goal to optimize for thriving. And that entails real risk, real courage, the possibility, the opportunity of real compassion, real creativity, not almosts or partways or pseudos of any of these things, but a world where those are real and substantial and not just weakly permitted. It's the only kind of world that I think is compatible with a good creator that might have, and I trust did, create the world we're living in. Mm. Wow. Okay. Optimizing for thriving. For the opportunity. For the opportunity to thrive. Very cool. All right. So we're, uh, I would love to continue this conversation and perhaps we will. Sure. But uh, for today, we're about out of time. So is there anything, any last thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners? One thing does come to mind. I, you know, considering the audience, that is that there, the world is a big place. And sometimes we have preconceptions about what groups of people are or what they are not that are worth reconsidering in ourselves before holding to them too tightly. So, for example, there are preconceptions about what Mormons are. There are preconceptions about what transhumanists are. There are preconceptions about what shamans are. And in my experience with you, John, and um, in my experience with others who have intentionally embraced labels, I've learned that those labels are good shortcuts. And as long as we understand them as good shortcuts to get to a place to have a good conversation, then there's not a problem. But as soon as we take them as more than good shortcuts, we cut ourselves off from so many amazing ideas and intersections and ways of learning and growing and making each other richer for the experience. So the one thing I would want to say um, is just that Mormons and transhumanists may not all be exactly what you anticipated. (laughs) And I hope I've exemplified that. Yeah, well, you know, language language in in and of itself is a shortcut and it does take the thoughtful considerate uh, intention to sit down and share to really get through the limitations of language into something that we might call meaningful conversation which you know ultimately gets down to intimacy so yeah I think that's good that's good good advice and uh, and a valuable service to our listeners. So thank you very much. Thank you. Um, and now, so if folks want to learn more about you uh, or your experiences, your work in transhumanism, where do we send them? Two good places to go. One, if you'd like to learn more about my thoughts, my work, you can go to my website, 
either just Google Lincoln Canon or go to the website lincoln.metacanon.net. Okay. And then if you want to learn more about Mormon transhumanism, then you can either just Google it, it'll come right up, Mormon transhumanism, or our, the actual website domain name is transfigurism.org. Very good. All right. So that's lincoln.metacanon.net and transfigurism.org. All right, Lincoln, thank you so much for sharing your time with me today. Thanks for the invitation, John. I enjoyed it. And we'll be right back. A personal tarot reading can offer you insight, information, enlightenment, and empowerment along your life's path. Hi-C is a professional tarot conversationalist and ritualist with over 10 years' experience. He's available for readings in a variety of formats, including parties and events. To schedule your personal tarot reading, contact Hi-C at tarotbyhi-c.net or email him at hic at fireflywillows.com. Well, that's our show. Hope you enjoyed it. It's May. Get out there and show your love and express your creativity. Be childlike. Be ageless. Be your own version of compassionate divinity. I'll bet you'll be surprised at how much fun it is. Thanks for joining me. Until next time. Thank you for joining us. This program was brought to you by Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. We hope you enjoyed the show. This is Deb Carousella. Please join us next time on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E for Evolve with Robin White Turtle Lizney. Thursday afternoon at 2 p.m. Thank <laughs> you.